alienation and hostility. What comes to mind when you think of those words? Maybe animosity, alienation, hostility, animosity. What comes to mind when you think of such words? All three of those have been fixtures in every single relationship from the time that sin entered into the world in Genesis chapter 3. Ever since the fall, all of our relationships have been marked with alienation, hostility, and animosity. At the very moment that sin entered into the world, man became estranged not only from his creator God, but it wasn't but one chapter later that we see animosity reaching its boiling point as two brothers murdered. Cain killed his brother Abel, Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. Sin is without contention the greatest separator. Separates man from his creator God and subsequently it separates man from man. If we are not in right relationship with God, then we cannot be and will not be in right relationship with any other person. Now, it's important that you understand that, and I'll repeat that phrase because I want you to consider that phrase in light of who you might date or court one day, who you might marry and yoke yourself to one day. If we are not in right relationship with our Creator God, then you will not be in right relationship with any man made in God's image. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that was our study for last week, Paul reminded us that we used to be separated from Christ. We used to be aliens and strangers with respect to God's chosen people. We were without hope and without God in this world. And Paul emphasized those deep, dark realities so that the converted Gentiles in the church at Ephesus, and we as well, might rejoice in the fact that we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul used the same model of bad news before good news as he had earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's bad news. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And then verses 4 through 7 is the good news. And right sandwiched in the middle of the bad news and the good news are those two words, but God. Paul uses that same model of bad news before good news, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and the following. Verses 11 through 13, the bad news. And then you get that good news there in verse 13. But now, you used to be aliens and strangers. You used to be without hope. You used to be without God in this world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When verses 14 through 18, that's our text for this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, Paul's going to tell us how it is that Christ has brought the Gentiles near. In short, Christ has brought about horizontal peace between those who were God's chosen people, namely Israel, the Jews, and those who were not God's chosen people, the Gentiles. Christ has brought about horizontal, relation, or horizontal reconciliation, but horizontal reconciliation only comes after there is vertical reconciliation. Paul's already dealt with the vertical reconciliation, but now in Christ you've been brought near. And now in our text for this morning, he's going to turn his attention to horizontal reconciliation as a result, but then just so we don't miss the fact that the vertical relationship is the pinnacle relationship, he's going to come back in the last two verses of our text this morning and deal with that foundational vertical reconciliation again. 
in Christ, peace with God and peace with man, which was thrown into chaos as a result of the fall, is restored. You know, as you follow God's unfolding redemptive plan from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 in the pages of your Bible, you see that unity is very prominent on the heart of God. It is of paramount concern to him. As a matter of fact, the very evening before his crucifixion, Jesus knelt in the dimly lit garden and prayed for his disciples that they would be one. He prayed that in John 17, verse 11, John 17, verse 21, and John 17, verse 22, that his disciples would be one. And then in the very next verse, John 17, 23, he prayed that they would be together in perfected unity. Unity among his people has always been of paramount concern to the heart of God. In the text before us this morning, Paul describes the greatest peace mission in all history. Jesus Christ not only reconciles Jews to Gentiles, but he's also reconciled both to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning, and I think we'll see clearly the Prince of Peace at work. If you have the ability, I want to encourage you to stand this morning as we turn our attention to God's Word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, pens the following words. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing all the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that or so that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing or putting to death hostility. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You may be seated. There are three points on your outline this morning. If you're taking notes, let me direct your attention to point number one. It is this, simply, there is no peace outside of Christ. There is no peace outside of Christ. Let me turn your attention just to the very first phrase of verse 14. Everything that appears before the first comma there in your Bible, Paul writes this, he says, for he himself is our peace. The pronoun he there, it's intensive. It's forceful in meaning. That's why it's redundant. For he himself, or he truly, or he and no other. He himself is our peace. He's our peace with God, and he is our peace horizontally with man. Notice this. Notice that Paul does not refer to Jesus as just the peacemaker. Rather, he refers to him as the author of peace. Yes, Jesus is the peacemaker, but he's greater than that. For he himself is our peace. He's the author of peace. And we oftentimes think about peace as being the absence of trouble or the absence of conflict or the absence of war. But Paul defines peace in different terms. Paul defines peace in our text here this morning not as the absence of trouble, not as the absence of conflict, but rather as the presence of Christ. 
We oftentimes think, well, we would just have peace if this person would just go away or if this person would just stop doing that or if my circumstances were just a little bit different, then I would have peace in my life. Paul says, no. No, peace isn't the absence of trouble. It's not the absence of conflict. Peace is the person. And his name is Jesus Christ. The presence of Christ is our peace. Paul says, Jesus Christ, he himself is your peace. You may have seen this bumper sticker from time to time. It says, no God in O. Without God, no peace. Without God, without peace. And then right below it, it says, know God, K-N-O-W. To know him is to know peace. Without God, there is no peace. But with a knowledge of God in right relationship to God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we can know peace. We can live at peace, both with God and in our horizontal relationships. I think that statement, though I'm not the hugest fan of bumper stickers, carries more than an ounce of weight. Matthew Henry once said, some of you may refer to Matthew Henry from time to time as a, as a helpful commentator as you're studying your Bible, as you're having your quiet time or devotional times, but Henry once said this, he said, what peace can they who are not at peace with God have? What, what peace can those who are not at peace with God have? And the answer is none. None. There are two things that all men need. All men need peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. That is man's principal need, his pinnacle need. And then man's second need flows out of that, and that is the peace of God. We need peace with God, and as a result, we have peace with God. And the peace of Christ, the peace of God, it will, it will rule your hearts in Christ Jesus. And men have searched for peace under every single conceivable rock in this world, and yet they often times come up empty-handed and empty-hearted. Why? Because they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Remember the old country song, looking for love in all the wrong places? Well, you'll come up empty-handed and empty-hearted every time if you do so. People look for peace in places like relationships, in jobs, and in possessions, and in status, and in security, and you could go on and on and on endlessly. If you're searching for, if you're seeking for peace, real peace, lasting peace, sustaining peace, it's defined by a person and it's not found anywhere outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in verse 14, Paul emphasizes that there is no other source of peace, true peace, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Isaiah ascribed to the Lord Jesus Christ hundreds of years before his incarnation, hundreds of years before Jesus took on human flesh. The prophet Isaiah ascribed to him the name Prince of Peace. And friends, let me tell you that he still exercises that office today. He is the Prince of Peace. Do you know him? I love the 18th century hymn, and this is probably not a familiar hymn to most of you, but it's entitled, A Mind at Perfect Peace with God. Listen to what the author pins here. A mind at perfect peace with God. Oh, what a word is this. A sinner reconciled through blood, this indeed is peace. By nature and by practice, far. Remember, we were born into sin by nature, and we, before coming to know Christ, practiced sin. We even became proficient sinners. By nature and by practice, far. How very far from God. 
yet now by grace brought nigh to him through faith in Jesus' blood. So nigh, so very nigh to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of his Son I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I cannot be, the love wherewith he loves his Son, such is his love for me. Peace with God. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then we experience subjectively the peace of God, which transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's getting ready to turn our attention to peace with our brother here. But before he does that, he wants to make ultra clear the fact that we must be at peace with our Creator. You see, God works peace through us only after he has first worked peace in us. You understand that? God works peace through us relationally, horizontally, only after he has worked peace in us. It's only when a man tastes the sweetness of God's forgiveness and grace, when he's justified by faith and at peace with God, that he can then turn and truly live at peace with others. And it is to that that Paul turns our attention, and this is point number two on your outline, simply this. The blood of Christ brings men into peace with each other. The blood of Christ brings men into peace with each other. Let me draw your attention back. Look at your Bible. Again, verse 14. Paul says, who, speaking about Jesus, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh by his sacrifice the dividing wall of hostility. You know, here's the question. Who who can repair the riven tapestry of humanity? Well, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone can charm confusion into fusion and separation into sympathy. He, Jesus, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I mean, Jesus Christ has taken Jew and Gentile in our text here who for centuries have lived together with extreme disdain for one another and he's broken down the towering wall of hostility that stood in between them and divided them. Well, what is this dividing wall of hostility, you ask? Paul refers to here in verse 14. He's going to tell us. Matter of fact, it's the very next words as you look at your Bible. But before we look at the specific dividing wall of hostility, I think we need to put our finger on the heart issue behind every human relational conflict between all human hostility, between Uh, all human animosity. I think it's paramount that we understand what is at the root of hostility in any given relationship. You might want to write this down if you're taking notes. Hostility in relationships, animosity in relationships, relational tension, conflict, however you want to term it or define it. Relational conflict or tension. All of that is the fruit of the sinful, self-centered, self-loving, pride-riddled heart of man. You see, that's where all animosity, where all bitterness, where all envy, and where all strife emanate from, right there in the heart. Embedded in the heart of every conflict, in every quarrel, or every relational frustration lies this truth. This is important. At the heart of every relational conflict, every relational tension, every point of contention, animosity, or hostility, lies this truth. 
I love me. And you have somehow gotten in the way of me loving me. You can pin every single point of human contention to that point. I love me. I am so deeply in love with me. And you, by what you said, or you, by what you've done, or you, by the way you've acted, have gotten in the way somehow of me loving me. And I don't like that. You see, every human conflict is the result of the fact that one party has dreams, desires, and ambitions once, and the other party has dreams, desires, ambitions, and wants. The problem is is that my dreams, ambitions, desires, and wants aren't congruent with your dreams, desires, and wants. And because I love me, and I love my dreams and desires and wants, instead of loving Christ in that moment and deferring to you, instead of serving you, instead of putting your interest before my own, I'm willing to go to war for my dreams, desires, and wants. And what you get is you get two people that are just willing to lock horns. That's conflict. That's husband and wife conflict. That's parent and child conflict. That's, that's, that's co-worker conflict. That's conflict within the body of Christ that shouldn't exist. It's I want what I want. And I so want what I want that I'm willing to go to war for it and battle. I love me. And somehow you've gotten in the way of me loving me. It's the sinful, self-centered, self-loving, pride-riddled heart that is at the core or that is the root of every manifestation of hostility or animosity or alienation. What in particular gave opportunity for this sinful, self-centered, self-loving, pride-riddled heart of man to come out or to be expressed between the Jews and the Gentiles. Well, Paul tells us here in our text, look at your Bible, he tells us that the historic cause of enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles was the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. Verse 15, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. When we speak of the law, we need to be clear about the fact that it's not God's moral law that was abolished. You'll see that word there in your Bible. The law was abolished. Christ abolished it. It wasn't the moral law of God that was abolished. The moral law of God reflects His holy nature, and as a result, it's unchanging. But the relationship between the law of God and the believer, that's a challenging subject in the Bible. Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law, and here's the, here's the point, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. See, God ordained and gave the law to Israel to demonstrate the impossibility of sinners earning right standing with God as a result of their law-keeping, as a result of their striving to, to keep the law. The The law made all men sinners because all men failed to live up to its perfect standards. The law held captive or imprisoned everyone under under sin, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. It created a barrier between sinners and God. When Paul refers to the law of commandments, here's the point you need to get. It says expressed in ordinances. 
The law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Paul's not referring to God's moral law, but rather to the ceremonial law. That's the law in view that Paul speaks about here in your, in your text. You see, the ceremonial law, it made a huge distinction between Jew and Gentile. Numerous, numerous stipulations in the ceremonial law excluded Gentiles from Jewish forms of worship. And you have dietary laws, for instance. And all those dietary laws reminded the Jews that God had made a distinction between what was clean and what was unclean. And because the Gentiles didn't obey or abide by those laws, they were viewed as unclean and outcasts. I mean, just think about it for a second here. If, if God has given me, Israel, the Jewish people, the law and the commandments and the covenants, and it stipulates this, X, Y, and Z, and you're not obeying the law, then there is now a gulf that separates the two of us. Now, that gulf was meant to lead both Jew and Gentile to the saving person and work of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, what it did is it created hostility and animosity between the two groups where one thought, I'm better than you. I mean, a Gentile wasn't permitted in a Jewish temple and a Jew would have not stepped foot in a Gentile pagan temple. Jews and Gentiles, they stumbled over each other's traditions and beliefs and in doing so, they stumbled over each other. And that happens even in the redeemed church of God. We stumble over each other from time to time. At, at, at points that don't need to be points. I mean, when it, when it comes to orthodox theology, I mean, we, we got we to gotta agree, we got to link arms on some things theologically, where if we disagree, then it separates us, orthodox from non-orthodox, even Christian from non-Christian. But there are a lot of trivial things that take place that don't make any difference, that divide the people of God and should not. We stumble over each other. You see, laws and ordinances and ceremonies and sacrifices, they were all powerless to bring men into harmony with God or with each other. But what the law couldn't do, what the sacrifices couldn't accomplish, and what the flesh couldn't make a reality, Jesus Christ accomplished in the sacrifice of himself on Calvary's cross. He abolished the dividing wall. Look at your Bible there. Look at that word abolished. How would you define that? It's not a word that is typical of our everyday vernacular. Abolished. It means to make ineffective or to render powerless or to nullify. What Paul is saying here is that by Christ's death, or you'll see the phrase there, in his flesh, Jesus made the ceremonial law of no effect. He perfectly fulfilled it perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial law and then rendered it ineffective. He withdrew all grounds for hostility so that Jewish particularism and Gentile exclusion became a thing of the past. He says, I'm I'm removing this from the table so that it's not a point of contention. You want access to God? You come through me. It's not by observance of this or observance of that or yes to this and no to that. It's through me. And so Jesus made the the playing field, so to speak, level. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The cross tears down every dividing wall within the body of Christ, such that what was once Jewish particularism, we've got to do it this way and it's got to be done like that. And rightly so, God had given those particular ordinances and those, those particular commands to the Jews. But Jewish particularism and Gentile exclusion became a thing of the past. 
During World War II, a group of American soldiers were exchanging fire with some Germans who occupied a, a farmhouse. And a family who lived in the house had run to their barn for protection. And no sooner did they do that, that suddenly their three-year-old daughter became frightened and she ran out into the middle of the field between the two forces. I mean, hot bullets are zipping back and forth. But when both forces saw the little girl, they immediately ceased fire until she was safe. You see, a little child, albeit for a brief moment, brought peace that nothing else could. Likewise, Jesus Christ came to earth as a babe. He took on human flesh, and in his sacrifice on Calvary's cross, he became peace for those who trust him. Peace with God, and he became the peace within the body of Christ. Removed all distinctions, such that there is no more Jew and Gentile, or slave and free, or man or woman, or Scythian, or barbarian, Greek. There is one new man, the redeemed church of God, believers, I was thinking about peacemaking in the body of Christ this week in my study. I was thinking about this. True peace, whether it be vertical or horizontal, true peace only comes when self dies. And the only place self dies is at the foot of Calvary's cross. True peace only comes when self dies. Remember, I want what I want, and I want it so bad that I'm willing to go to war for it, and you want what you want so bad that you're willing to go to war for it, and so we get conflict and division. True peace only comes when self dies. Paul said it like this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is to be my principal driving concern. Not my wants, my wishes, my wills, and my desires. I've been crucified with Christ. And it's not me that I love principally anymore but Christ that I love. Because of my desire to honor him and to love you, I will give deference or preference to you. I will think of others before the interest of myself. That's the definition of a servant from Philippians chapter 2. We are called to live at peace with each other in the body of Christ. And that doesn't just mean that we walk past each other on Sunday mornings and we just exist or we just tolerate each other. Friends, there are peacemakers Peace breakers and peace fakers. And oftentimes in the church, we become really good at peace faking. We kind of put that smile on, you know, it's like, but is there really peace? Is there really reconciliation in a relationship that might have been divided for X, Y, or Z reason? Or we've just become proficient peace fakers. God calls us to be peacemakers. And from time to time, in your peacemaking efforts, you may be rejected in your attempts. But the only other alternative is to remain in continued hostility. God didn't settle for that in his uh, desire to rescue and ransom us, and so neither should we in our horizontal relationships. If you, brothers or sisters, have a broken or a fractured relationship with another person in the body of Christ, I want to encourage you, yes, you, not the other person, you, to take the step forward and to initiate and pursue reconciliation. You. I mean, Paul said it this way, insofar as it depends on who? You live at peace with all men. 
You can't control the response of the other person, but you can control your desire to please God, right? Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Hey, friends, there, there is one way. There is one godly, biblical way that we can one-up each other in the body of Christ. You know what it is? Showing honor. Paul said, outdo one another in showing honor. There's one godly way that we can one-up each other, so to speak. And that's by showing honor, by loving one another, by forgiving one another as we've been forgiven in Christ. You take the first step in reconciliation, even at the risk of being shot down. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12. He said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And here's the phrase, live in harmony with one another. Don't don't, don't just coexist. Don't just tolerate one another. Live in harmony, i.e. peace with one another. Do not be haughty. Remember, that's the root. That's behind every relational conflict and tension and animosity and hostility. It's I love me. And you've gotten in the way of me loving me. Paul tells us in Romans 12. Do not be haughty. He says, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And he closes Romans 12, 18 by saying, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let me ask you this question. How are we doing there? How are we doing? Not just tolerating each other. I mean, we are the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. What, what minor insignificant thing is there that should separate us? There isn't one. There isn't one. I mean, the world walks around with chips on shoulders that, and people walk around like this because those chips become so weighty after that. That doesn't exist in the body of Christ. I can forgive. I can show preference. I can honor. I can love. I can forgive. How are we doing at pursuing reconciliation? You know, let me get off notes for a second here. We live in a world right now that is pressing this whole idea of racial reconciliation. Let me, let me just press this for a moment. There is one race, the human race. There are various nationalities and various, various ethnicities, but there is one human race. Don't let that car drive a wedge in any relationship. The human race, one man, specifically in the church, the redeemed man, redeemed by Christ's blood. Paul concludes in verse 15 with a purpose statement. Look at your Bible. He's already answered the what question. What has Christ done? Now he'll answer the why question for us. Why has Christ broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and abolished the ceremonial law? He gives us two reasons in the text. Look at verse 15. Reason number one. That he might, or so that he might, create in himself one new man in the place of two. That's the first reason. And the second reason, drop your eyes down to verse 16. We'll be there in just a moment, but the second reason is there in verse 16, and it's this, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. First, Paul focuses on the creation of a new man. Have you noticed that that creation theme or creation motif has woven its way through Ephesians 1 and 2? And it's not going to stop, by the way. 
We've been created anew in Christ Jesus to do good works. We were once dead in our sins and trespasses, but we've been recreated in Christ. Well, that creation language, Paul employs it again here in verse 15. Not only is God at work recreating individuals in Christ, but he's also at work recreating one new man in Christ where there was once a sin-riddled distinction between the two. You see, Jews and Gentiles who had at once been deeply divided and at enmity with each other are now brought together by the blood of Christ and formed into a new humanity. That new humanity wasn't made by making Gentiles Jews or by making Jews Gentiles, but rather by putting them both on level ground, equal ground before God on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work for them. Again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. You come the same way I come. You receive the same grace I receive. The same blood that I need for the, for the forgiveness and remission of my sin is the same blood that you need for the forgiveness and remission of your sin. There is no distinction. Paul said that in Galatians chapter 3. He said, for as many of you were baptized. That doesn't mean baptized in water. It means baptized by the Spirit of God, given a new heart. It means converted. For as many of you were baptized, or for as many of you were converted into Christ, put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the discord that exists horizontally, the discord that exists in our relationships with man are but a symptom of a deeper quarrel between man and God. And Paul's going to turn our attention back to that foundational relationship, that vertical relationship in verses 16 through 18. You see, the basis for our, for our horizontal peace is vertical peace with God. And this is where Paul now directs our attention. Look at verse 16 with me, and this brings us to point number three on your outline. And that is the blood of Christ brings men into peace with God. The blood of Christ brings men into peace with each other, but that is only because the blood of Christ brings men into peace with God. Look first at verse 16. Paul says, And he, Jesus, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing or putting to death hostility. Remember, the first reason that Christ abolished the ceremonial law was so that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. That was the end of verse 15. Here Paul takes up the second reason, stated here in verse 16, and that is that he might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the Christ or through the cross, thereby killing or putting to death hostility. I think this, I think it is difficult to, to think of a word that that more comprehensively describes what God has done for sinners through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, aside from the word reconciliation. I can scarcely think of a word that better describes, that, that more comprehensively describes what God has done for sinners through the work of Jesus Christ than reconcile, reconciling them to himself. That's reconciling. To reconcile means to bring two disunified parties into unity or harmony. Remember, before God's gracious initiation uh, into our lives, we were estranged and we were alienated from Him. We were without hope. We were without God in the world. Uh, That that, that phrase translated without God in the world. Remember, it's the the Greek word atheos. It's where we get our English word atheist. We were without God in the world before grace came careening into our lives. 
Ever since the fall of man in the garden, every single person born into this world, and you say, Eric, you say that a lot, and we need to be reminded of it a lot, but every single person born into the world that was born into a state of enmity with God. You see, the same law that separated Jew and Gentile separated created man from his creator, God. And from a human perspective, this situation can't be rectified. It's utterly hopeless. Not only can we not make reconciliation with God in and of ourselves, but we wouldn't even want to. That's Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. No one understands God. No one wants Him. Apart from His grace. Apart from His divine initiative in our hearts. But thanks be to God that Jesus Christ bore the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, as the judge, Jesus could have come into this world. He could have taken on flesh and declared war, and rightfully so. I mean, our sin is cosmic treason before a thrice holy God. Jesus could have stepped on the scene and declared war. But that's not what he did. He took on flesh, he stepped into our world, stepped onto the scene, and he preached peace. Peace with God. Not on the basis of your own works, not on the basis of your own merit. Toss your report card away. If you are to be saved, it is on the merit of Christ and Christ alone. On the basis basis of His shed blood for you alone. You see, in the demonstration of grace, Jesus came instead with a message of peace. Not a message of war, a message of peace. I love Jerry Bridges' words in his book, The Gospel for Real Life. I don't have a copy of it here to show you, but I would commend that also to your, what is hopefully a growing growing Christian library. Jerry Bridges, The Gospel for Real Life. Get you a copy of that. This is what Bridges says. He says, In Christ, the war is over. The alienation and the divine displeasure towards us because of our sin has been removed. Where he came preaching peace. We're no longer objects of wrath. We have peace with God. However, to the extent that we understand and believe the truth regarding justification, remember, how are we justified? By faith alone in Christ alone. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. He says, however, to the extent that we understand and believe that truth, that Romans 5.1 truth regarding justification by faith alone, we will experience a subjective peace That's a sense of peace within our souls. Remember, the two greatest needs of man. One, peace with God. And then what flows out of that is the peace of God. I have peace with God, and therefore I experience the peace of God. And that overflows into my relationships with others. Remember, we're not not peace-breaking and we're not peace-faking. We're peace-making. It doesn't mean that we turn an eye towards that which is unrighteous and call it peace. It's not what Paul is saying here. Jesus certainly never said that. We're to point people to the one who can make peace with their souls, namely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. Paul goes on in verse 17 and says, And he, Jesus, came and preached peace. Remember, he could have preached war, but he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul's actually quoting an Old Testament text here. He's quoting Isaiah 57, 19. 
where Yahweh says to Israel, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. That's what Yahweh said to Israel. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, and I will heal him. With that phrase, to the far, it refers to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Remember, God never made covenants with Gentiles. His his covenant promises were made with the people of Israel, but those promises contained the inclusion of the Gentiles. And so in Isaiah 57, 19, you have the inclusion of the Gentiles. Peace, peace to those who are far off, to the Gentiles. Because there's there's going to be a point in redemptive history when the gospel is going to be made known to them, and they will come into the fold as well. You see, the Gentiles, they were the strangers and the aliens. They were without the covenants of promise. They were without hope. They were without God in this world. But Christ, along with the apostles after him, and even we, we are to be about the task of preaching peace. Now, not just, it's okay, you can do what you're doing, If it violates the express commands of God, that's not peace. That's peace faking. Jesus never did that. But that we're pointing people to the one who can make peace with their souls, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, along with the apostles after him, and even we here this morning, if we are the redeemed people of God, we preach peace through the shed blood of Christ. But notice also that this peace was preached to the Jews, those who were near Peace, peace to the far and to the near, both to the Gentiles and to the Jews. Remember last week I mentioned that it's possible to be near and yet far off at the same time? It's possible to be near and far off at the same time. Here's what I mean by that. It's possible to to, to be busy doing all kinds of religious activities. It's, It's possible to be busy with all kinds of religious observance and yet at the same time have a cold, calloused, dead heart spiritually. I mean, Jesus put his finger precisely on that issue with the Pharisees, and he said, though these people honor me with their lips, all kinds of religious activities, they're what? Their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out many demons and perform many miracles, and then I'll tell them plainly, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. You see, the issue is not what you have done. The issue is what has been done for you and have you received it by grace through faith. For some of us, we need to stop stop trying and start dying. If a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and it remains a seed, then then it remains fruitless. But if it falls to the ground and it dies, Jesus said it what? Produces much fruit. possible to be very externally religious, but to be internally cold and dead. It's not only the pagan Gentiles who needed to hear the good news of of peace with God through the blood of Christ, but it was the Jews too, the religious folk, so to speak, who knew the covenants, who had God's promises, who had, had a working knowledge of a coming Messiah, even though their idea of the Messiah was way off. They were looking for some Messiah to come white riding in on a white horse and to save them from Roman oppression. Even though they they had misconnected dots, so to speak, about who the Messiah was and what actions he was going to perform, there was at least a looking forward to a coming Messiah.
In the interest of time, let me turn your attention to verse 18. We'll conclude here this morning. Paul says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. For through Him, Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Let me ask you this question. What jumps off the page there at you? Back at your Bible for a minute. Short verse, not many words. What jumps off the page there at you? I hope the Trinity jumps off the page there at you, amongst other things. Paul's using very distinct language here. Very deliberate Trinitarian language. And he emphasizes the Trinity because the Trinity demonstrates the perfect harmony and unity that we are to strive for in the local church. You see, God exists in three eternal persons, three distinct persons, diversity, yet in one God, unity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, diversity, one God, unity. There is a diversity and a unity amongst the Godhead. Paul says, through him, that is Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, of course, those those distinctions have been removed now. There's one new man, we both, one new man, have access to one spirit, to the Father. And we are to model our relationships in the church after the triune Godhead. Notice that Paul says, through him. Always love language like that. We live in a pluralistic world. It doesn't matter how you come to Jesus. It doesn't matter who your God is. No matter what you call him. No matter how you appease him or seek to have right relationship with him, all roads lead to Rome in the end. Nothing could be farther from the truth, my friends. Paul says, through Christ. Jesus said that himself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Implication, you can't go over him, you can't go under him, you can't go around him, you must come through him. There's no other way. And there's no other name. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Is Christianity exclusive? You better believe it is. There's one way, there's one name. It's exclusive. At the same time, it's inclusive. Because the gospel call is all who will come. You can't come your way. You have to come the way. But all who will, come. Come to Christ. I mean, if you're sitting here this morning and you are the religious observance person, if you're the one busy about all kinds of religious activity but who has a heart that's never come in contact with the Lord Jesus Christ, repent right where you sit and come. Come. Come to Jesus. The gospel call is inclusive. Can't come your own way. You've got to come His way, but come. Come. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Come. Access here. We all have access. The redeemed have access in verse 18. That word access carries the idea of introduction or freedom to enter. It's the picture of a common man being brought into the chambers of a king. We have access. We have access to the king of the universe. But we must come through the king's representative, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you know the White House chief of staff, he can give you access to the president. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.2, 5, Through him, that is Christ, we have also obtained 
access or introduction or freedom to enter by faith into his grace in which we now stand. Jesus Christ gained us access to the God of the universe who has become a father to us because of the cross. What an indescribable privilege to be able to come into the presence of the Father through the Son in dependence on the Holy Spirit without distinction. Let me say a few things in conclusion this morning, and I'll begin with this. What about you? It's always a good question to ask when you're spending time in the Word. You, you finish your quiet time. What about me? After I've read what I've read, after I've studied what I've studied, what, what about me? What about you? Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart as the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus? If so, then praise the Lord for his marvelous work of grace in your life because there is no peace with God. There is no subjective peace of God apart from that. And if you're here this morning and you've never come to faith in Christ by humble repentance, humble faith and repentance, then wave the white flag. Surrender. He bids you come. He bids you come. Lastly, how about us? How about you? Are you pursuing peace with other believers? It's easy to pursue peace and to love those who are just like you. Again, because you love you and I love me. So it's easy to pursue peace and easy to love those who are just like us. But it's not always easy to pursue peace and to love those who aren't just like us. What about those people? you know Christ savingly, if they know Christ savingly, if you've been reconciled to God by faith in Christ, if they've been reconciled to God by faith, then you and they should pursue peace and reconciliation and a vibrant Christ-like fellowship with one another. Not just tolerating each other, that's peace-faking, but peacemaking. 